This is the Darcy Giroux Podcast, episode 32. Today, my guest is Josh Andrus, Executive Director at Project Confederation. We're going to be talking about Alberta, its role in Canada, and the Canadian Constitution. Josh Andrus, welcome to the Darcy Giroux Podcast. How are things? Ah, oh, good, good. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to I've been looking forward to doing this since you booked me in December. So uh <laughs> Yeah. It should be this should be fun. I, I'm I, I always do I enjoy doing the podcast. I enjoy uh the, the banter. You can't really do that when you're doing a radio hit, right? Because they're looking for a sound bite. This is a little bit more uh wide ranging and we can talk a little bit clearer. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We tried doing we've been trying to do this for a long, maybe almost a year to be honest. I uh I remember talking to you about it what was definitely last winter i think when we were at yeah it was at danny hozak's uh economic education uh one of the last Mm -hmm. ones that i actually well it was the last one that i attended um yeah uh we've been trying to set this up for a while i'm looking uh, yeah this should be fun yeah so i will let you introduce yourself to the guests um just so it's more accurate sometimes i screw up the introductions all right, I will. Uh, I'll get right into it. My name is Josh Andrus. I am the executive director of Project Confederation. Um, project Confederation is a project of the Alberta Institute. So uh, I know you wanted me to talk a little bit about how that all works. Um, the Alberta Institute kind of provides administrative support for various projects. Um, we have several under the Alberta Institute banner, including the Free Alberta Strategy, which dominated the the headlines over the summer, and and even recently with the. Uh, federal potential federal launch of the just transition um the alberta parents union is a part of it um we've got the common sense groups which is your common sense calgary common sense edmonton medicine hat Lethbridge, red deer and i think we're launching in fort mcmurray and grand prairie if we haven't already uh, that was on the docket for this year um what 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 we try to do is, is promote public policies that limit the size and scope of government and especially government overreach into your personal life um project confederation which is my project i also do outreach and uh stakeholder relations for the Alberta institute but um in my role as executive director of project confederation um our my job is to find a way to limit the influence and interference of the federal government in the affairs of everyday albertans through the government um we've seen through the years of especially under uh this current uh, federal administration that the federal government seems to completely ignore uh the the rights of provinces it's creating issues uh, in almost every province at some point has had to stand up to to this government and uh obviously tensions are running high especially right now with the just transition so project confederation we've got a set of nine policy recommendations um one of which has already been accomplished um what the first one on the list i believe was uh to hold an immediate referendum to abolish equalization for the constitution of canada we had that in october 2021 that uh, passed with 62 percent a resolution was passed on the florida legislature that unfortunately has gone nowhere but that's why we've got eight other recommendations we believe that um Canada is, should, is a free country and there should be unrestricted movement of goods and services across provincial borders. We believe that uh, that 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 is in the Constitution, that is Section 121, but we've had activists, Supreme Court judges over the past few years, uh, actually over the past hundred plus years, uh, dictating to Alberta and to other provinces that you can't move your goods uh, freely despite that being in the Constitution. We have, um, we believe in an electoral reform. Uh, the, these are the three big ones that require constitutional, there's four big ones that require constitutional reform. These are the three biggest. Um, we believe in electoral reform. We think that the House of Commons should be representation by population. That, you know, every province should, like, it's, cause it's not right now. Some provinces have more influence in the House of Commons than others. Um, and we also believe that the Senate should be reformed to have a more equal approach in terms of regional balance, um, where we have an equal number of senators per province. Uh, they can either be elected or appointed by the provincial government. In the United States, they're elected uh, prior to the uh, the Senate elections being a, a primary thing in the United States. They were effectively 
They were appointed by the state legislature. So that's kind of what we're doing there. Um, we also have uh, some firewall initiatives. Of course, you probably have heard of the firewall letter written in 2001 by Stephen Harper. Um, it was also signed by uh, Andy Crooks, Ted Posenkool, Ted Morton. I'm forgetting a couple. Rainer Knopf is another one. He's at the Fraser Institute. So th there's a lot uh, of, of strength behind this push, but it's uh, for things like a provincial police force, provincial pension plan, um, and, and provincial uh, unemployment insurance, as well as um, switching out the transfer programs for tax points, um, which we'll get into at some point, I'm sure. So that's how uh, Project Federation works. I'm also... Currently, uh, there's a group of us that are running the Free Alberta Strategy. Of course, the primary push of that is the Alberta Sovereignty Act, which was passed uh, in the legislature middle of last month. So that's what we're doing right now. I hope that kind of covers all our bases. I hope I didn't go too much into detail there, but uh, I think I answered the question. Yeah, well, you definitely answered the question. Now, so is Project Confederation, a? is it a national or initiative, or is it primarily something that is happening here in Alberta? So organically, like we started in Alberta, obviously, um, that started with the, so I actually, it's funny, I'll tell you how we kind of came about and how organically, like we are going to be national, that is the goal, but, uh, but organically, like it was me in Alberta being upset with the way that our federal government had been treated and not necessarily buying into Jason Kenney's fighting message. I felt like there was players behind the scenes and things that were going on that that didn't sit well with me and, I, and i've been i've wait I've been public well, on these wait things. wait a minute are you are you saying that uh jason kenny did not fulfill some of his electoral promises i got to the point in the summer of 2019 where i didn't think he was taking any of it seriously um, and it was before the provincial election, actually. And there were some things that he was doing that were going against his messaging during the leadership race, which happens, I know. But this isn't like some little thing where you can, you know, go spend a couple million dollars. And yeah, sure, that goes against your philosophy, but people don't really get upset about it. This is the federal government we're talking about. This is a government that is currently trying to legislate our primary industry completely out of business with the just transition we're talking 187,000 jobs just just right that, that won't exist not not to mention all those people that are going to be shifted off of these $90 an hour jobs into these $40 an hour jobs being janitors or or truck drivers right I mean it's one of those things where this is a bit I felt like it was a bigger issue than Kenny was 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 seeming to be prepared to push and my suspicions over time proved accurate um as the federal election went on kenny seemed to have all of his eggs in the 2019 uh, election sorry um kenny seemed to have all his eggs in the andrew Shear basket he believed that uh or at least it looked to me like he believed that if Shear won the election that western alienation would cease to exist um, obviously, he got that wrong. Justin Trudeau was elected. But thankfully, um, Peter McCaffrey and myself have been working on a project, which we call Project Confederation. And if you get a chance to look at our logo, it's it's a fractured maple leaf. And uh, we believed that, uh, and we actually, I think we're right in our belief that the country is is starting to fall apart. You're starting to see regional disparities and regional shifts because we are, there are unique regions. I mean, nobody, I'm not going to sit here and say that Quebec is not a unique region in Canada or that Ontario doesn't have unique regions within it or Alberta is not, Alberta and Saskatchewan don't share a similar culture that's unique to the rest of the country because that's, that's the case. But you have a federal government that believes that we're a post-national state, that we should be a unitary government and that they should be able to dictate to us everything about our lives. And I think that that's really what's been driving this. And I think Kenny misunderstood that. I think he believed it was just a bunch of angry yahoos, um, which I believe it looks to me like that was the way that he approached uh, the situation the entire way. And it created some friction for sure. Um, but in 2019, we were prepared. Um, we had our, our our new Alberta agenda, which we released with those nine policy points that I mentioned earlier. Um, we very quickly ratcheted up to 7,000 signatures. It was an Alberta-focused uh, approach um, at first. Um, but as time went on, uh, we saw Scott Moe start to get a little bit more agitated. And I remember it was uh, shortly after a meeting with 
Prime Minister Trudeau in 2019 that Scott Moe stood in front of of a, a media scrum and I've he just looked so raw and disappointed in what he saw and and that was when we realized that we probably should start expanding to Saskatchewan and it's it's a slow process COVID kind of you know it's hard to hire someone in the middle of COVID you know find the right person um, find the money for that person which is an issue I mean obviously like this even after the Emergencies Act we had a bit of a shortfall in uh, contributions but we're at the point now where we are starting to expand we are looking at uh, building organizational hubs in Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, and uh, British Columbia. Um, so we're, we're, we're in the very early stages of that. I mean, you got to find the right person, right? I mean, that's the key. And it's got to be someone that's, you know, engaging, outgoing, outspoken, um, smart enough to understand the issue, not just at its base level, but get deep into the details. So it is, it's, a, it's an ongoing process, but we are looking at federal, uh, expanding into a more national organization. I know we've got followers in Quebec and it's actually surprising the amount of support that we get from people in Quebec for what we're doing. They absolutely love it. So yeah, there is definitely a huge opening for us to go national. That's something that we want to do throughout the course of this year. Um, but, and, and a big help in that is, was when Rob Anderson joined us, uh, with the free Alberta strategy. Now, Rob has obviously moved on. He's now the executive director of the premier's office, but when he came in, he, he kind of, they took over the Alberta file and I, I got to play a little bit in that. And I got to play a big role in the free Alberta strategy. And over the course of the last 10 months, maybe not so much at the beginning, but once Rob left, it was my job. Right. So, um, so the free Alberta strategy is definitely more of a protect Alberta, you know, like put up, it's more of the firewall, which is a part of project confederation. So there is some overlap, but we are definitely talking, we do want to branch out and we want this to be national because we do think that we do think there's a chance that we can fix this. Right? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, and it's hard as it is, like some people don't think that there's any chance. I, I do believe there's a chance. I mean, it might be slim and maybe we fail. But that's just part. That's just part of the process, and we got to be ready for that. So, yeah, that's that is the idea. We do want to go national for sure. Yeah. Well, well, I really think that you know some of these experiments in soft. I call them soft secession, like the the Alberta Sovereignty Act, uh, where you know these provinces are really reasserting their um, the delineation of responsibility between federal and and provincial governance. I mean, that's really the most exciting thing that I've seen happening in politics in Canada in a long time. And it's it's unfortunate that things had to get pushed to a point where there was that much agitation that that it happened rather than it just being a creative force that came about more more peaceably, I would say. But yeah, to me, it's one of the most ex exciting things I've seen, and I can understand completely why there are people in Quebec who are supporters of, of what you guys are up to, because it, I've spent some, a lot of time in Quebec, not a lot, but some, and I've talked to a lot of people, and a lot of times the response I get is that, you know, they don't, it's not about, um, you know, Closing a closing the border of Quebec to the rest of Canada, the same way Alberta is not talking about closing the border of Alberta. We're talking about those those responsibilities that are uh, in the constitution being allocated to the provincial government; those being preserved. and And I think Danielle Smith said it really well when she said that um, you know Ottawa is not a national government; it's a federal government, and and people a lot of times don't understand that that difference in definition well we've definitely seen uh like i don't think that the agitation has shifted i think alberta's in this nice little sweet spot which we haven't been hit yet with the just transition like right. they're talking about it like but we haven't seen the legislation it's hard for us to come out as hard as we want against it because we don't know what's in it but the fact is it's coming and but over the last year here, well, the last few months, I mean, the Sovereignty Act was a, was a huge newsmaker across the country. I mean, during that leadership campaign, we had constitutional scholars coming up and saying, you can't make this constitutional. Well, guess what? It is constitutional. They, We had the premier, the sitting premier, who was a lame doc, sure, but he was interfering in the election process saying that it was cockamamie. Well, it's been passed. It hasn't been used yet. But I think 
as we head into the 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 winter here the deep winter i like to call the, the january february december is kind of christmasy everybody's kind of <laughs> but we're into the you know the deep freeze and uh when you get into the deep freeze especially in ontario and quebec energy prices are going to create more uh inflation the bank of canada is talking about backing off on its uh interest rate hikes here so if 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 they're offside and we get a, another bad inflation print in ontario like this is not this is a transfer program but in more ways than just financial transfer this is a human transfer program is what it is it's a human capital transfer program they're going to transfer alberta's workers and our wealth out of the province entirely and put them in in other jobs in in ontario uh, mm-hmm. that, that appears to be what they're doing now i don't know what the legislation is going to look like we'll see but that that definitely does appear to be what it what it looks like and it's one of those things that it is going to devastate the economy. So it, tensions are still high. They're still frozen. And it's, but the, the beauty of what's going on, and this is why I liked your question about the national approach is because it's not just in Alberta. I mean, BC, uh, their health minister standing up against the federal government on conditional health transfers. We talked about that, uh, in October uh, on another program. And it's one of those things where you have a federal government that is basically saying that, okay, we'll give you some more money for this health crisis, right? Because we are in a healthcare crisis. You've got backlogs of people that didn't go to the hospital during COVID or were scared to go to the hospital, now go to the hospital. So what you end up with is the federal government saying, okay, we'll come, we'll give you some money. And then they're saying, but you have to give us your data. That's what they really want. So they're essentially trying to bribe the provinces. So the BC health minister is standing up and saying, no, Alberta, we talked about that at length already. We we could probably go deeper into it if we want. Saskatchewan is in the same boat as Alberta. Um, like the, even with the fertilizer thing, right? They're a huge, they're, they've got huge potash plants, right? So yeah. that's, you know, that's a big, that's a big issue for them. Manitoba, they've got some potash there as well. Um Ontario, uh, with the teacher strike, uh, they invoked a notwithstanding clause. Trudeau came out and said, well, I don't know if you can do that. Well, you can. It's in the Constitution or it's in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms for a reason. Right. And Quebec um, obviously doesn't want to be left out of the conversation either. And so you've got uh, like Legault, despite all of his talk about um you know, language and religion and how Quebec has a distinct society. The Parti Québécois still elected a few MPs or MNAs is what they call them there. And the beauty of what happened there is that Quebec, they they refused to, to swear an oath to the king, which almost created a constitutional crisis in itself. So we've got all of these burning fires going on. And and and, and Trudeau and, and Legault are fighting right now about the notwithstanding clause. So you've got these like, serious political and con- legal issues these are not, these aren't just political issues these are legal issues that the prime minister is seeming to step himself or continue to step into and it's it's creating almost an impetus for constitutional reform sooner rather than later and it's not because we were it's not because the provinces want to go, have a constitutional convention it's because we're going to need one like this isn't well, a joke anymore this isn't funny right yeah. like yeah yeah, well, it it seems to me like, yeah, they that nobody really wants to open up that that conversation, and and I, in a way, I can understand why because the crazy kind of leftist culture that that permeates every facet of you know Canada's bureaucracy these days. If you open up the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, we really have no idea what kind of crazy stuff could end up in there at this point, and and that would be my best argument for not doing it. Okay, so yeah, like when it comes to constitutional reform, it is Pandora's box. It is definitely one of those things where, yeah, they, there could be a lot of stuff that you're not getting, but I think that all sides need to recognize that this is a give and take. Um, you do require seven provinces with, uh, I think it's 50% of the population combined to ratify it, which means there needs to be some give and take. If Quebec is asking for too much, there's a chance they're going to upset Ontario or BC, right? So it, it's one of those things where it's it's a process where you sit down and you have a honest conversation about the direction that you want the country to go. Mm-hmm. 
and there's going to be different opinions. And so it's important. And that's what Project Confederation's goal is, is to build that. What build? So if we're going to open the box, then we need to be ready for it, which means everything needs to be on the table. It means every single transfer program needs to be looked at. Every single little agreement that we have, like every everything, every power sharing agreement, and there's thousands of them. I mean, that's what the 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 Sovereignty Act is in the middle of doing right now. Is they're they're analyzing every single little agreement because every single little agreement is going to need to be looked at because one side's probably getting a better deal than the other, and I'm willing to bet it's not us, right? So we have to be prepared for this, which means we need to be have a full understanding of everything that's going on because that's when the negotiations start, and we're up against probably one of the most bureaucratically capable slash incapable <laughs> governments that we've ever uh, experienced. So we're going to be having stuff thrown at us, uh, technical issues with little things, right? So yeah. we're going to have to be prepared for all that. But I think it's important for Alberta and for, for the Western provinces to be aware that, yeah, it is Pandora's box, but that means everything needs to be on the table. Absolutely everything. There is nothing that we, we there's nothing that isn't small enough to ask for. Because once the negotiation starts, it is going to be, it's a game. Yeah, when the game's on, you got to be on. And so that's part of what we're doing right now is we got to be prepared for that. And and even in like when you, you talk about secession and separation, and let's say like this, there's a risk tier to the rest of the country as well, right? Because if we go into this constitutional convention and it becomes the dog's breakfast that other, that people, that the all my critics think it's going to be. Well, that creates a bigger problem for those critics, because if if they're right, then there's going to be consequences for that. If the rest of the country isn't going to take our our issues seriously, it's going to create another separatist wave. Right. It's going to and the, and every time we do one of these, that number gets a little bit higher. I, 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 I like we hit 34 percent support for outright separation back in. I want to say a year ago. Now that number's falling off. I haven't seen nobody's done any polls on it, but I know you just know it's falling off. Um, we saw the Wild Rose Independence Party of Alberta get up to fifteen to twenty percent in the polls um, before Important. Danielle Smith was. Well, yeah, I mean that's a lot of that is internal, and there was uh, struggles on the board. There's there's money questions as well, and you never like you never want to build a party when there's money money questions. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so. Um, you get in this situation where, and it, it did, it, that's really one of the big reasons that it took Kenny out. And Danielle was able to use the Western alienation front and put the sovereignty act on the table and caught everybody offside, caught everybody off guard. And it's one of those things where I think the government of Alberta now recognizes that angry letters aren't going to get you very far. Like legislation needs to be like shots. If you if shots are being fired at you, you, gotta, you fire shots back. And right now that we are in the letter writing phase because the legislation hasn't been tabled, but as soon as the legislation gets tabled, it's going to be on right. gloves are coming off and it's probably going to get bloody. There's, there's going to be casualties, uh, political casualties, but I think it was Winston Churchill that once said, uh, politics is like war. It's just as exciting but instead of dying once, you can die over and over and over again. So, <laughs> but that's kind of, I think, where we're headed here. Yeah. Um. Well, there's a. I mean, there's a few other things. You know, I'm curious about. You, you know, opening opening up the conversation of the constitution because you do have, you know, these pockets of population like uh, Toronto and Vancouver. I mean, and and. It, you know, it seems entirely possible to me that these these uh, mega municipalities, these cities, um, could could want could you know want to be part of those conversations as well, and and impose certain rights um, that they think they are due, just given the size of the the population they have. What like what are your thoughts on something like that happening? Well, I mean, they would need to be legally recognized by the Constitution first. I mean, yeah. municipalities, according to the law and according to the existing constitutions, are just creatures of the state. They do they are given permission by the province to 
manage their affairs according to a set of rules. I mean, that's why Alberta and other provinces have ministers of municipal affairs, right? Um, because it is the job of the province. Now, this this is something that has, like, when the Constitution was first written, municipalities weren't really big enough to be considered. And, and maybe that is something that will come up and talk. But they're going to need to organize and ask for for some rights uh if the, if the state if but at the end of the day they're technically according to the law are creatures of the provinces they are the babies of the provinces and, and you've seen it in, like in alberta right now in chestermere right like there is an ongoing investigation into some missing money from from city council mm-hmm. um millions of dollars through a, a utilities company has just disappeared or, so, or something along those lines i don't want to um say exactly what it is just because i don't have it right in front of me but the province is, has has appointed an administrator, and the administrator everything goes through the administrator. That is how it works with municipalities. So yes, they can yell and scream all they want, but at the end of the day, from a constitutional standpoint, they are just uh, they are wards of the province, and if they want to be treated any differently, then they're going to have to build uh, a case to right to yeah, do it yeah. in the same way that I'm going to have to build a case for for my concepts right i mean to me just to point that out is not a it's not a good enough case as to not do this like it's everybody's gonna have to be building a case like and whoever does the best will get what they want and we know the going in that we're not going to get everything we want mm-hmm. right but there are some things that are absolutely non-negotiable yeah yeah and well, so it's a, it, it comes down to then it's a game right you then it's an it's a negotiation game you know what your non-negotiables are you know the things that you don't really but you can't show anybody your cards because then everybody knows what they are, right? Hello, friends, and thank you for listening to the Darcy Giroux Podcast. Many of you will be familiar with the Capitalism and Morality Seminar that takes place in Vancouver each year. It's an opportunity to discuss issues and events from the Austro-Libertarian viewpoint without censorship. The seminar has welcomed firebrands of the liberty movement that you've heard here on this show such as Walter Block and Tim Mullen, as well as investors such as the legendary Doug Casey. Jayant Bandari, who hosts the event, is a friend of the Darcy Drill podcast and was a guest on episode 29. Well, we have some exciting news. We have teamed up with Jayant to create a capitalism and morality seminar here in Calgary this May 2023. I'll be letting you know as we secure speakers, but you really want to go to the link in the show notes and sign up for the newsletter so you can be kept up to date. That's where you'll get all the details such as venue directions, nearby accommodations, and most importantly, how to get tickets. Trust me, you do not want to miss this seminar. Let's talk about let's talk about these ideas on electoral reform. I mean, what's your what's your argument for um uh some sort of proportional representation? Yeah, so as of right now when it comes to the House of Commons and how how the uh, country is really governed is especially in this current political environment where you have such an a hostile fe- an aggressive federal government. You end up with a situation where all the decisions are made through the prime minister's office because of the centralization of power. The 338 MPs, 199 out of the 338 are currently in Ontario and Quebec under this alignment. They elect the government. We usually find out who the government is before our polls close. There's 199. So right now, the liberals and the NDP are governing. But at the end of the day, all decisions are made by the prime minister's office on what happens. So you have a centralized governance model which also means that the central and if you get too much power concentrated in that office, they're going to seek more. And that's what they're doing with the provinces. So the idea is uh, on terms of proportional representative representation is that the House of Commons is legitimately proportionately rep- there are uh, proportionately represented, um, which means that if Quebec has X percent of the population, they get X amount of seats. There is no bottom there's no top if you lose population relative to the rest of the country not to say your population is going down just that maybe alberta is growing faster you maybe the country is growing faster than you are the rate of changes are different well you will lose seats relative to the rest of the country right like that's just a fact of the matter and quebec right now will never lose seats um 
I think Newfoundland's got no number of seats. So, like, essentially what you do with the House of Commons is you make it so that it is proportionally represented. But the key here is that the Senate does bring in that regional fairness. So if you have a Senate that has effective powers, and there's arguments now that you could say that the Senate does have effective powers, it just doesn't have the le- political legitimacy to wield them. Um, but the idea with, and it's an idea that was pioneered by uh, Preston Manning, uh, Stephen Harper, and the Reform Party. Uh, Tom Flanagan was in there too. So, and it's the Tripoli Senate. Um, and it's the idea where you have an elected Senate, and there's debate on whether you're elected or appointed, and I talked about that earlier. Um but uh, so the, the Senate is elected. So that gives you legitimacy, right? Because right now they're just appointed by the prime minister. And if they do anything too bad, then the population that they could, we could just abolish it. Right. I mean, technically it doesn't really serve any function other than to be the sober second voice of the Laurentian establishment. Right. Mm. Silver, silver is a, a funny word to use there. <laughs> 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 yeah, they're probably going to be listening to this sitting on a beach somewhere drinking a margarita. Yeah, hey? yeah exactly. Um, but anyway, so they're supposed to be the chamber of sec- second, sober second thought. And but what you do by making them elected is now they're accountable for their actions, or or they're appointed by this pro- the province on a term. You're you're accountable to the province. You're accountable to the people. In this case, you're not. You serve until you're seventy five, or die, and. That's it. You don't like once you get that job, you're in. It's gravy, right? Mm-hmm. So, by creating that that level of accountability, you create some legitimacy for them to actually use some of the powers that they have. Maybe you take some powers from the from the House of Commons, but there's some argument that their their powers are effective. They're just not used properly because they're not legitimate. So, so that's the two E's: effective and elected. And the third one, and this is probably the most important, is equal. Every province should have an equal number of senators. Now, I don't care whether it's 20 per province, four per province. Uh, it doesn't, to me, that doesn't matter. All that matters is that each province has an equal number of senators. Now, this should appeal. This will appeal to Alberta because the prairies right now have 24 senators across the board. And I think Ontario and Quebec both have 24, right? So there's clearly some, some disparities there. Um, and in this case, by, by, with the equal clause, you create the ability for provinces to to better defend themselves um, because they have you have an equal voice in the Senate. In this, in our current makeup, Alberta has six senators out of whatever hundred, I think, and or yes, it's not something like that. Um, they've got six senators, and they've got got thirty four seats out of the three hundred and thirty eight in the House of Commons. I mean, we are we're terribly underrepresented in parliament and it's it's you see it in federal policy you see it in in every almost every program federal program that we're a part of and that we pay into we pay more than we get i mean i'm just i mean that's not just for equalization it's going to be the case for child care it's going to be the case for it's the case for health care it's the case for for almost the pensions i mean like just on pensions alone we're we're sending Billions of dollars every year to cover unfunded liabilities in other parts of the country. Like this is just what we're doing. And and so it's a big issue. So that's where the like by creating that second tier, you almost add a layer just to kind of as a defense mechanism. And if your policies are bad, you're going to lose anyways. But if you can you've got good policies and you properly communicate them, it makes it easier to implement uh, policies that protect the interests of the province that you're supposed to be representing as opposed to a appointment. So that's, that's how that reform model works. Mm-hmm. It, we have the, we've got the buildings already, right? Like we don't, <laughs> it's not like we need to build another Senate building. There's one right across from the West end that I stay at when I'm there. Right. So we don't have to change any of that, but what we got to do is we need it. We need true reform. And I, I do think, without giving too much away that that is a non-negotiable is some kind of electoral reform that gives Alberta a say. I mean, we are paying the bills everywhere in the rest of the country. And it's, you get to the point sometimes where you wonder whether or not you can keep your own lights on. And I think we're kind of there where we're starting to look, uh, we got an election coming up in May, the end of May, the writ should be dropped in, in early May. If we lose Alberta, you know, that's, that's kind of it. And I think everybody's looking at Alberta right now saying, okay, you guys got to step up here. And I, I do think the just transition will create enough division between 
to UCP and the NDP that the UCP should be able to hold on, but you never know. So yeah, that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, but if, if, if trends continue to, to go in the direction they're going, whether you or anybody else wants the constitutional convention or not, it's going to happen. Whether Pierre Polyev wants a constitutional convention or not, it's going to happen. And and in that event, we need to be absolutely prepared for it. And and I even say this to to the hardened separatists, the the uh, I mean, the Dennis Modrys of the world. Sure, yeah. That we can't leave the country without constitutional reform. There is nothing in the Constitution that gives a province the right to cede or to leave the Union without a constitutional convention. And that was the the uh, Clarity Act ruling. Um, we tried to use the Clarity Act on equalization. So, I mean, it, we're also up against the Supreme Court, which makes things more challenging. We've got a very activist Supreme Court. We saw that with the uh, ruling on bill on the carbon tax um, and how the dis like the Alberta court of appeals ruled against it on the basis that it created a Trojan horse that by using environment policy, which is federal jurisdiction, you can, as a catch all, you can essentially supersede every other jurisdiction and it creates a Pandora's box that any, any policy jurisdiction area of policy jurisdiction that the federal government has, they can actually use that now to interfere with any provincial jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it'll be interesting whether, and, and so there's a lot, like there's a lot of irons in the fight, like this healthcare thing where they're trying to essentially bribe the provinces for data. Is that, are the, if they, if the provinces stand up and fight, is that going to be a national security issue? Right. Like where, like, so, well, I mean, maybe not national security, but some other things. So you've got all of these fights between the federal government and the provincial government. And we've seen the heavy hand. We've seen how much control they're willing to exert over the people. We saw it just a year ago. I mean, tomorrow, I believe uh, Sunday is the one year anniversary of the uh, the trucker convoy arriving in Ottawa. I mean, they're probably, if you look back a year, I think they're probably in Thunder Bay or something like that, right? Like, so you're in this, this situation where you have a federal government that is acting in a certain way and they've shown a, a tendency to react in a certain way. You can almost take that, um, take those actions and use those actions to predict future actions. And if the future actions means heavy hand and if Trudeau comes down heavy on Alberta, Quebec's watching too, because there's a lot of frustration in Quebec about the way the federal government has been treating the constitution. There always is. I mean, that's the one thing like, you know, like it's always there and it's always going to be there in Alberta, but you have these parallel kind of societies going on, right? Like where you have Quebec is probably 50 years ahead of us. But we're starting to do the things Quebec is doing. We're starting to do the things Quebec has done. And I think we've gone through our quiet revolution. And I, I just hope things don't become violent. But we've seen, I mean, that was, I think, at the concern of the governments during the convoy and the protest. Now, at first, the first few days, it looked pretty good. Uh, but then you had certain elements that were taking credit for things that they weren't doing like false prophets i'd say I, I, i'm just gonna say i think pat king's a false prophet i think james bowder's a false prophet but you have these elements in any movement that could become hostile and could become violent and i hope that we don't have the the plq crisis here um mm-hmm. i really don't because you never want to see violence but it's getting to the point where i think we've reached the end of the quiet revolution people have quietly sat there fuming for the past eight years and they want to see some changes and we know that trudeau is going to do everything he can to stay in power alberta's not voting for him anyways quebec and ontario are they're dealing with an uh, affordability crisis the best way to to buy votes in ontario and quebec is to take money or jobs from alberta and give them there and i do think that there's more coming i do think the heat's going to turn up here it, well as yeah as far as alberta's concerned i mean you don't have to I mean, I'm in Calgary, but you don't have to go too far into rural Alberta to, and all you see is, uh, F Trudeau and upside down Canadian flags. If you, if you're flying into Alberta, I mean, you see, you see it, you see it carved into hay fields or, uh, somebody has planted all, like arranged their, 
hay bales out in the snow in a way to say something crude about Trudeau or the state of Canada. Yeah, it's just frust- like it's not even frustrating. It's not even surprising that that's the case when you see the rhetoric that comes out of the the the. I won't. I don't want to point to all mainstream media sources because I do have some good contacts there, but you just you get into the like the rhetoric the the like when that when the convoy was heading to ottawa and they're talking they're comparing it to white supremacy movements and things like that and you look at wow like come on man like there is nothing <laughs> about this that like maybe there's a couple morons in there and there's going to be like i said there's a couple morons in every crowd yeah and you got to watch them for sure but to paint everybody with the same brush because of what two people said like i don't think like well i don't personally hate people from ontario i mean there's a lot of blue ridings in rural ontario outside of the gta and i think maybe the gta is starting to turn to is that like like you said you don't have to go too far out of calgary to see those flags i don't think you got to go too far outside of cottage country to start seeing maybe not those flags but flags of you know the more blue signs than red and i think that I think that we're starting to reach the point where people are starting to demand action. And I I really think that's why tensions are so high. Canada is at a size now that it does seem like it's at a point where it is collapsing in on itself. Like in healthcare is the perfect example of that. We were watching healthcare collapse in on it under its own weight in real time. I mean, and, and COVID really exposed that for us it and justified a lot of you know arguments that people on our side would would have had in the past um but at the same time it it's hard to watch at the same time you almost, we almost wish we were wrong sometimes right oh i wish i was wrong all the time <laughs> i mean but this is <laughs> Yeah, okay. Uh, let's yeah. let's let's talk about healthcare. Yeah, not healthcare. Okay, let's talk about healthcare here. It's not really my area, my area of jurisdiction, but we did talk about it briefly with the uh healthcare transfers. So, it seems like every year that we're going into like a, a healthcare crisis, right? Like every year the college of physicians and doctors starts screaming and the the nurses union and the doctors union and everybody starts screaming about how we don't have enough beds, we don't have enough this, we don't have enough that. So, what do we do? Well, we throw money at it. The problem, though, is is not, in my mind, is not an issue about how much money we spend on our healthcare system. The problem, in my mind, quite clearly, is that we have a monopolized healthcare industry. And whenever you have a monopolized healthcare industry, the money goes more into the to the bureaucrats and the management than it does the front line. So we could give Alberta Health Services twenty billion dollars more. We double their budget. I think there's or fifty billion. I think we spend on it. So we. Jump that up to seventy. The only people getting rich are going to be the the union executives. We're not the money doesn't go to the front lines. It is frustrating. We saw that during the pandemic, and we're 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 getting into this place where there's not enough workers to fill the needs because the uh, the nurses and doctors get to retire at you know they've got they retired at younger ages, right? So you have almost this gap in services. And it's another one of those things where the healthcare transfers aren't covering what they want. And even when the federal government wants to give you more money, there's conditions attached to it. Like this isn't, this is an issue that we're not going to be able to solve with an extra 10% boost in healthcare funding. This is an issue that needs to be solved with all, just by taking some shots in different directions here. I yeah, mean, we can't sure. keep doing the same thing we're doing, especially now that the backlogs like COVID people didn't go to the hospital. Like, I mean, I know some, like so maybe somebody had a hernia and they sat on it for two years because they didn't want to go. Well, now they need surgery. Right. And, or, you know, cancer, maybe they didn't go to the doctor in 2020 and the cancer spread. And like, so we've got this and not only and I was my grandpa, uh, he was sick. Uh, he passed away in October and I sat in the hospital. We were in there for I wasn't there the whole time, but I got there later. He was there for 16 hours. Just to get the test. That's just unacceptable. We've got but it's one of those things where. We've got a bunch of bureaucrats in Ottawa that are more concerned about increasing the number of bureaucrats and increasing the number of managers 
within the healthcare system than they do about the services it provides. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think that's an issue. Oh, for sure. Well, I always like to use, you know, the analogy of say, uh, something like a, an automobile company, right? Say, say they, say they, say they produce uh, a vehicle that, that is unsafe. Uh, the vehicle crashes, a bunch of people die, you know, being that it's a, a business that operates on the free market. The answer isn't to just throw a bunch more money at this thing, which is exactly what happens when you have a healthcare system that crashes and a bunch of people die. And that's really what happened. Our healthcare system was not competent enough to deal with something like COVID because it's our healthcare funded. system was cra- has been crashing was crashing for four for I I'm willing to bet, and this is maybe something I'm, I'm I I probably won't have the time to do this, but I'm willing to bet that I could go back. Almost every year since we created a universal monopolized healthcare system and find at least two or three articles declaring that the system is on verge of collapse in every single year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and every single year, like people on the left are always going to complain that, uh, that there's been these cuts to health funding and stuff, which has never happened. Not once that. If you look at if you look at healthcare spending, it's a straight line up, right? We spend more per capita in Alberta on healthcare than any other province outside of I want to say Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. I think it's Newfoundland, and Newfoundland is broke. Like, and that's that's where it's at. Like, where Alberta, like the, for the amount of money we spend on our system, we should have hospital beds coming out of the yin yang. We should have doctors every. We should have too many doctors. Yeah. For yeah. the amount of money we spend, but there is this, and I, I, the system, but yet our system's on the verge of collapse oh, every it year. Yeah. It seems like, and it's, it's just, it is, it's, it's, and we, we continue to spend money on it. Like, yeah, it's, crazy. it's awful. Yeah, it's, and sure. it's not like we're like we're we're building a couple hospitals here or there, but. Most of the money is not going to the front lines. Most of the money is not going to where it needs to go. There is some severe structural deficiencies. I'm going to run on that automobile reference. Sure. If you're an automobile company and you're throwing money at your supply line, you know, and you're you're giving in your uh, your your front, you're, the guy putting the hubcaps on the car is making fifty bucks an hour. He was making thirty, but then they went on strike, and now it's fifty. Well, your costs are up. So, what if there's you know. So let's say this is GM. It's 2007. Well, and maybe Ford is looking at Mexico saying, well, here's the thing, guys. Like, I don't have to pay my workers 50 bucks an hour. I I can pay them 10. They'll do the same job. They'll do just as good. We'll get the cars out. Or China. There's manufacturing. And so what you see is, you know, when, when a jurisdiction gets too bloated, They'll look for another jurisdiction. In healthcare, you don't have that option. So the bloating just continues and continues and continues and continues. And it's like a balloon that just, and it's, but the services aren't coming out. Like you're not getting, you're not getting the healthcare outcomes that you want. I mean, I saw a stat and I don't have it in front of me, but uh, Ontario has roughly the same amount of people as New York City, give or take. New York City has like, it was something stupid. It was like 10 times the number of hospital beds and doctors during COVID. Where like, and like Alabama, a state that has 4.4 some million people or 3.6 or something. I don't know the number, but it's roughly the same size as Alberta in terms of population. Alabama, a state that is the butt of every single comedian. Every single comedian's got a <laughs> yeah. joke about Alabama, yeah. right? They'll yeah. make one or two about Alberta, but Alabama's <laughs> the butt of America's jokes. Yeah. They have 10 times the number of hospital beds as Alberta does. Their healthcare system is better run than ours is. Now, there are some critiques on American healthcare, and I, I've seen them, but at the end of the day, we have a monopolized system that we pump money into that doesn't have the outcomes. And it's provincial jurisdiction too. The federal government should like, I think the Canada health act is a violation of the constitution in certain ways. I mean, it's a hard one to argue in court, but it's one of those things where I think you can make a case in the sense that every single healthcare transfer that has a condition is unconstitutional. 
there, there should be no conditions. This is a provincial jurisdiction. If you want to help, I'm happy for the help. Like, give me the money. But don't like. So what they do is because these transfers have become so massive, is that the federal government exerts undue influence over the provincial uh, over over healthcare. The fe- like the bigger this bureaucracy gets, the worse it gets. Passport offices were, you know, you couldn't get a passport. You couldn't arrive can app. Like we get these federal bureaucracies making decisions in things that are provincial jurisdiction. Well, well, I'm well, the, sure. Of course, it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was a lengthy rant on healthcare. I, I wasn't <laughs> planning on going there today. But. Yeah, I, I've thought about I've thought about converting this entire podcast into a, a healthcare a healthcare critique. To be honest, because it comes up on every episode. Well, I managed to get the uh, get the shots in at Ottawa on that, so I'm pretty happy with the answer. Yeah, there you go. Okay, tell the listeners where uh, to find you guys and where to follow you. Yeah, so uh, you can find uh, me at uh, projectconfederation.ca. If you click uh, subscribe, donate, join, contact, um, subscribe, you subscribe to the list, join, you can join for a monthly subscription of $10, $20, you get to choose $5. Um, and then there's the donate button. Uh, that's just if you want to do a one-time donation. That's usually for the, uh, we get a lot of people that like doing it that way. We get some people that like, I think we got like 300 or yeah, 380 subscribers or something like that. But we get a lot of people donating as well. Um, and then, yeah, if you just want to sign up for the mailing list, uh, I send out uh, usually it's been more this month, but it's usually once every couple of weeks, I'll send out a newsletter. January, we probably sent out about 10 <laughs> communications. So it varies uh, from time to time. Um, also, probably the big one and the one I should be promoting is uh, if you go to our website, projectconfederation.ca, you click action. And there's a drop down menu. You can actually click on our no just transition petition. That is the big one we're pushing right now. The just transition, of course, is the federal government's uh, new environmental policy. And we talked earlier about, you know, how they're using environmental policy as a catch all to effectively legislate Alberta's energy industry out of existence. So if you could go there, sign the petition, we're at uh, 12,000, maybe 13,000 signatures now. We want to get that to 20,000. Um, we know that once uh, the legislation hits, and I don't know how long it's going to take for this podcast to get open. Today's January 27th. They're in the House of Commons on Monday. So we'll see. It might be out by then. Um, so yeah, get there, sign up, um, and help us out. We, we're trying to build a movement here. We're a very grassroots organization. We don't have, we're not as reliant on the, the heavy hitters. We don't have the, the major oil companies backing us. But we do have a lot of grassroots support. That's what's keeping uh, keeping the lights on. So, yeah, definitely uh, check us out, projectconfederation.ca. If you hit contact, I do get the email so I can read it, respond, um, and just kind of go from there. Perfect. Okay, Josh, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. That was Josh Andrus, Executive Director at Project Confederation. You can check them out at projectconfederation.ca. And if you like the Darcy Jerome podcast, subscribe on Substack. <laughs>